This episode is brought to you by the Worth Your Time podcast, where your host, that's me, Erica Anderson, brings you unique and interesting conversations with Christian women working in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. See you there. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts. How long must I endure this person who acts so harshly towards me, hurting me, wounding me, who is so completely inconsiderate and insensitive and who has hurt me immeasurably? Lord, how often? Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is today's preacher. He preached this sermon to a seminary in Germany, November 1935. Joel, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a favorite on the show. We have to start the show by saying that if you have not listened to our earlier episodes mm. on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, go find make sure you go back and do. They are recognized by everyone as some of the best of the show. Uh, this uh, We have amazing speakers, and lots of them do amazing work. The person who does our Dietrich Bonhoeffer works very hard on them, and you're going to see in a minute part of the reason we're saying that. Uh, this sermon you're going to listen to is is just special. Yeah, and I'm excited because for the first time... We have audio of one of our speakers speaking the sermon at, at a service, at a church service. Yes. Dustin, our uh, our reader for this sermon, had read through the sermon and had actually recorded it beforehand. And he was he's a worship pastor at a church, and he was called to preach uh, one Sunday. And this sermon was, was close at his heart, and we're going to listen later on. We're actually going to use the audio from the actual church message itself. And he spends the first... I don't know, five minutes or so, uh, talking about his experience coming across the sermon, reading the sermon, and what it meant to him and the impact it's made on his life and his desire to share that with the congregation. Uh, it's it's incredible. It, for, for us here at Revive yes. Thoughts, it was just like, <laughs> it's happening. It's so cool to see an actual ancient sermon. I mean, granted, Bonhoeffer's one of the more recent ones sure. out of all of our uh, subjects, but still to see uh, one of these old sermons actually living at the pulpit again in front of a, a live, living, breathing congregation. Uh, it's an exciting moment uh, for us, and so we're excited to to share that with you. And and we think you'll, I mean, once you once you hear him uh, and the passion he has from it, it's kind of contagious. You get excited about what he's excited about for sure. And it's been, a, again, like Joel mentioned, it was a dream of ours that something like this would happen. We had no idea. In fact, we were just talking with him. He was like, hey, I got to confess, I used this sermon. Sorry for pre-spoiling it for you. We're like, spoiling it? We we want to use that audio. This was a, a goal of ours from the beginning that eventually these sermons would be preached to live audiences. Uh, so this is just exciting. We wanted to share that with you. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more of it too later on. But for now, let's get into the man Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We have not actually talked about him in over a year. So this is a little bit of a refresher, just kind of catching you back up. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born in Poland in 1906, and he will die in a concentration camp just a month or so before the war in Germany ends at World War II. And he was a preacher in Berlin, so right there in the heart of everything going on. Uh, he becomes the founder of underground Bible colleges. He gets involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler to attempt to end the war. And we, we've kind of discussed on the show previously <laughs> how, how that went, how we think that went down. But uh, we've gone into these details about some of these subjects. But while doing research into this episode, actually found a new source of information that's that was not really available to us at Revive Studios at the time. So now we're going to actually be able to talk about some flesh out some more details that are really in a lot of ways kind of brand new to all of us. Yeah, if you if you don't know a lot about Bonhoeffer, that recap was probably kind of 
eyebrow raising. You True. go, assassinate Hitler? What What on earth is going on with this <laughs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer guy? So if you haven't heard his previous episodes, you want to know more about them, you can find those previous episodes on our feed. But today we're going to be talking a little bit about one of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's sisters, Susanna Bonhoeffer. Now, this may come as a shock to you. It came as a shock to me. Not only that uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a younger sister named Susanna, but he also has a twin sister yeah. as well. How did that so not come up family. before? Right. So, I mean, Bonhoeffer himself is, you know, immortalized in time, uh, but his family is is pretty much, you know, no one, no one knows much about. And he has a couple elder brothers too. Yeah. Yeah. So he comes from a family. His sister Susanna's autobiography has, has gotten a lot of attention lately. And so we kind of got some new excerpts and stuff we can look at and know, figure out more about who Dietrich himself was as a person. Susanna grew up to be a pastor's wife. She was actually the one that visited Bonhoeffer in the concentration camps. She would pay for him to get taken care of while he was there, and so she knew him very, very well. In fact, Susanna probably knew him better than his actual twin sister. As a kid, she said he was very rambunctious. He was very smart and popular, although he did get teased a lot from his siblings growing up in the family. In the 1920s, liberalism had taken over the churches in Germany and had already gotten a hold of them before World War I even happened. And after World War I, you can imagine how those effects would have made the, the state of the church worse in Germany, leading into the power vacuum that would then become Hitler's rise to power in Nazi Germany. If before World War One, you know, if you've listened to the show for any period of time, you've heard us talk about theological liberalism. And if you're brand new to the show, maybe new to this idea, it's this idea basically that the faith is actually more about how humans feel about it. The Bible is not an errant. Uh, God is more of an ethereal kind of thing. You can't really touch him. He's, he's probably not the Jesus Christ of the Bible, that part of theological liberalism would say. And if you listen to the show, especially to ser- sermons from the 1800s, maybe men like Soren Kierkegaard, you can see that they're struggling with this idea, especially in Germany. Well, if before World War I, people were questioning God and the idea and the biblical inerrancy and the idea that people could, you know, create heaven on earth with human progress after World War I, it got so much worse. This idea of seeing so many people die and so much starvation and how just hard it was, the idea of heaven on earth was over when many people just gave up God completely and altogether. This left the church going even softer, just trying to get people to stay in the church and come through the doors, even though most people didn't see any reason to because the God of the churches of Germany was not really doing anything for anybody. Bonhoeffer would grow up in this, but as he got older, he would reject this theological liberalism more and more, and according to his, uh, according to his sister, and he and his sisters would used to make fun of the head pastor uh, for not understanding his own Bible and just being way, way too into philosophy and the philosophers. And this pastor, by the way, he just sounded kind of awful. Apparently, he was well known for selling pictures of himself to the kids, and uh, he would get tell them during their Bible classes, like, you need to get a picture of me with my profile. It's worth a little bit more, but it's really good. And he would sit at the front of the room and he would just kind of sit looking in a side direction saying the profile shot is my best shot as if i mean he sounds like he's an instagram star (laughs) 100 years before there was one influencer Um, exactly and he would often say he loved god but he could do without and this is his quote not mine the lord and savior stuff and wanted to instead focus on truth and light and grace and those concepts out there so if this was considered a good preacher and he was actually considered the good one you can imagine how bad things are yeah. in other places. It's, 
there's there's pockets throughout history where where I can imagine it being really difficult to be a believer. You know, in the midst of everything that's going on, Germany in the 30s is one of those times for me. Like everything that's going on, the state of the church, the state of philosophy, the culture that you're raised in. Uh, is is one of the least conducive places I can imagine a Bible-believing Christian being, right? Yeah, no, I agree with Joel, actually. I mean, you grow up in an environment with a pastor like that, imagine how difficult it would be just to take your Bible seriously. I mean, a lot of people say, I had a hard church. This guy, this guy's one of the best preachers in town. This is what he spends his time doing. That would be so difficult. So, and we know, and we, we've heard people criticize Bonhoeffer. Well, he's pretty theologically liberal. But Suzanne said that as he got older, he kept getting firmer and firmer in what he believed. And considering where he started, I think he probably moved in the right direction over time. It's when you're just surrounded by a culture like that, it's hard for you to, to take that completely opposite opinion when mm-hmm. no one else has it. Bonhoeffer is a complicated guy that you can see this because when people look at his life, I mean, he's known as a pacifist, uh, but he also was involved in a plot to kill Hitler. So, you know, at, at some point, progression, and, and the more you read into that, the more you're open for interpretation as far as how that affects his pacifism. There are, I don't know, there's a progress. There's a timeline to every, mm-hmm. everyone as a, as a person. You take any pastor and you analyze 30 years of their ministry. Yeah. Uh, the first year is going to look different than that last year for sure. But I think it's more easy to understand how he became a pacifist, again, when we look at his surroundings. He grew up in a militaristic, nationalistic country, right? I mean, in America, we kind of have, we look at World War II and we think of justice and we think of soldiers doing the right thing. Captain to, America taking yeah, down something. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, in, in Germany, growing up at that time, he's seen essentially, I mean, the Nazi party rise to power all around him and he is not okay with that. Bonhoeffer would struggle with his beliefs and and have to work out time and time again what he believed and what he didn't believe. And as he got older, his stand against Nazism was definitely something that he would solidify into into his worldview and who he was, especially at the university, but this um, costed him a lot. It's sometimes forgotten when we look at these heroes that does not normally start with, you know, a gun to the head and will you die for Jesus Christ? But it usually it usually starts with smaller steps. For Bonhoeffer, his academic head of his chair as the rise of the Nazis occurred in 1935 told him basically, hey, everybody in the department is going to get on board with the Nazi ideology. There's going to be no, you know, no theologians pushing back on this. And... Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer refused. This was a smaller thing than losing his life. But early on in the rise, he says, no, I, we're not Nazis. This is not what we're going to do. He's the only one in the entire department at the college to say no. And then later on, the only other person who would join him is actually his sister, Suzanne's husband, who a few months later would also be asked the same question, and he would also say no. These two guys are the only ones who do, and both of them lose their chance at getting and finishing their doctoral degree at the school they're at, and both of them have their positions and their kind of professorships taken from them. And so even though it's a much smaller thing than losing his life, you can see that years before things got really bad, he was already paying the price for saying no to the Nazis. And something that may have motivated him during this time was the time that he spent in America. In 1930 and 31, he went to Union Theological Seminary, which is in New York, I believe. During that time, he also visited a predominantly African-American church that he had been invited to, and he enjoyed the music and the worship there so much that he took a crate of recordings home back to his students in Germany, and he would teach these songs to them. 
Whatever it was, many agree that his time in America helped shape and change his theological course away from his German colleagues, whereas many agreed to go along with Nazism, uh, Bonhoeffer, we see him firmly resisting that. And now in this sermon we're about to listen to is preached in the same year that he is removed from his professorship for refusing to go along with what the Nazis are doing. It would be so easy for him to be bitter. I mean, I'm sure you've met or maybe you've even been there where you lost a job wrongly. I mean, imagine losing a job because you refuse to go along with the with this dictatorial rise that's happening around you. And they say, fine, you're out of here. You're the only one. You're all alone. Eventually, you know, your sister's husband joins you, but you guys are the only ones. It would be so easy to go just be bitter and angry. But listen to how he preaches a sermon on forgiveness and just says, forget all that. And he preaches forgiveness so much deeper and I think richer than most of us have heard forgiveness preached on. It's so complete and whole and and treated out of love, acting as if no crime ever took place. These do not sound like the statements of a man who is living through the rise of a dictator taking over his country, kicking him out of his job, and destroying everything around him, and seeing evil on the streets. And yet, that's exactly where he is when he preaches this sermon. And this sermon is preached again, you're listening to the audio of it being preached again to an actual church for the first time in 85 years. And we get to listen to that service come back to life for us right now. This is a message that is what well, was preached by Dietrich Bonhoeffer on November 17th, I believe, in a gymnasium. I have it written down here. In a gymnasium, 1935. And if you don't know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, obviously he was around uh, way before us. And so we don't have any recordings of his sermons. And so what I would like to do tonight is breathe some life into a sermon that he preached all these years ago. In fact, i got to give credit where credit is due. I came upon this sermon by some buddies of mine who have a podcast called Revive Thoughts. And so I'm going to give just a shout out to them. If you have never heard of that, if you're into podcasts, they're my buddies I went to college with. And this is what they do uh, for their ministry. They take old sermons and they have people read them and they bring these old sermons to life and revive them. So if you're into that sort of thing, if you want to hear a sermon from 1700, you know, <laughs> read by uh, someone like me or somebody else, they, they got a whole team of people. Or if you'd be interested in reading for them, let me know. I'd be glad to connect you with them. But they're in a couple, I think season three now maybe, and I've gotten to do all the Dietrich Bonhoeffer sermons. So this is the third one that I did for them. And I did it a couple weeks ago. Actually, I did it back in the Sunday school room here. I recorded it for them right in one of the Sunday school rooms here. And I think it will be aired in about a week or so. So hopefully I'm not stealing your thunder if you're watching uh, Joel and Troy. Uh, But this sermon, when I was preaching it in the Sunday school room back there, by myself, it convicted me. In fact, I think Hannah maybe walked by and saw me preaching to myself in the room there. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, uh, <laughs> I haven't completely lost my mind. I, I'm recording something in here. But this sermon really, I think, hit me in the heart. And I wanted to share it with you all. 
And so whether you've come here tonight and you've been walking with the Lord for 60 plus years, or maybe you've just come to know him, I think this is a key, key aspect of the Christian life. In fact, when we had Andrew Peterson here, he was so bold to say that he thought that the number one thing that was marriage, when people say like, hey, what's the key to a successful marriage? And most people will say something like communication. And he said he believes it's forgiveness. And I think I would actually agree with him on that. So whether you're here and maybe you're married, you've been married for a long time, maybe you're thinking about getting married, maybe you're not married, maybe you're um, young and, and maybe you're still in school, maybe you have friends and family, this is such an important concept that we find in Matthew chapter 18. And so I, I want to start off by reading Matthew chapter 18, where he gets this sermon from. So if you have your Bibles, if you can go ahead and just turn to Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, Matthew 18, verse 21. I'm going to pull it up here as well. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, and we'll go, I think, all the way to verse 35. And this is, a, again, a familiar passage that a lot of us probably know, but I'm always thankful for it and thankful when I can hear it. So Matthew 18, verse 21. See if I can turn there. Here we go. I'm going to read now the New King James Version. And some of your Bibles may say, the parable of the unforgiving servant or the roguish slave. That's the one I like, roguish slave. What a, what, it's a great name for a band. But um, this is the parable of the unforgiving servant. So let me read it to you here, then we'll jump into Dietrich's sermon. Verse 21 says this, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had, and that payment may be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But... That servant went out, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and laid his hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and they came and told their master all that had been done. 
Then his master, after he had called him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due. So my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Let's pray before we get into this sermon. Father, we do pray you'd help us open our eyes, open our ears, help us to see the truth in your word that it might change us from the inside out. That way we would be more like Jesus. God, we pray, help us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so right at the beginning of this sermon, let us just quietly and honestly ask whether we know anyone from our own circle of friends and family that we have not forgiven for some wrong that person might have done to us. Someone we once separated from in open anger or in quiet bitterness, thinking to ourselves, I can't stand them any longer. I can't even associate with that person. Or are we really so inattentive that we say we don't know anyone like this? Are we so indifferent to other people that we do not even know whether we are living in peace or at odds with them? Whether one after another, people from our life may someday stand up and accuse us saying this, you separated yourself from me in conflict. You couldn't even tolerate me. You quickly broke off fellowship with me. You found me unsympathetic and you turned away from me. I once did you wrong and you left me alone. I once wounded your honor and you broke ties with me. I often looked for you, but you avoided me. And never again we spoke frankly with each other. I wanted nothing more from you than your forgiveness. And yet you, will, you were never able to forgive me. And here I am now, and I am accusing you. Do you still even know me? And whether or not in that particular hour names will come back to us that we hardly recognize anymore, many, many wounded, rejected, poor souls who we did not forgive. And among those people, perhaps there's a good friend a brother, a sister, maybe even one of our parents. And at that moment, a great, threatening, terrible truth speaks against us and says, you have been a hard person. All your politeness cannot help you. You were hard and proud and cold as a stone. You did not concern yourself with others. You were indifferent. You never knew what forgiveness might accomplish. You never knew how it benefits the person who experiences it and how it liberates the person who forgives. You have been a hard person. And we try to make it easy for ourselves with other people. 
We completely blunt out our emotions. And then what we believe is that not thinking ill of someone is the same as forgiving that person. And yet in doing so, we utterly fail to see that as a matter of fact, we have zero positive thoughts about that person. To forgive them really would mean having nothing but good thoughts about them and supporting them whenever we can. That's precisely what we avoid. We do not support such persons. Instead, we continue alongside them and we grow accustomed to their silence. We don't take it seriously. And the whole point is to support such persons and to support them in all situations, no matter how difficult and unpleasant. Any injustice and sin they may commit, even against me, to support them and to love them without ceasing, that would come close to forgiveness. And those, indeed, who take this posture towards others, toward their parents, towards their friends, their wives, their husbands, but also strangers, in fact, towards all whom they encounter, they know how difficult this really is. They know how often they want to say, I can't do it any longer. I cannot stand this person any longer. I'm just worn out from it. One cannot always just keep on as before. Lord, if they sin against me, how often should I forgive? How long must I endure this person who acts so harshly towards me, who's hurting me and wounding me, who is so completely inconsiderate and insensitive, who has hurt me immeasurably? Lord, how often? At one point or another, it simply must end. Wrong simply must be called for what it is. My own rights cannot continue to be violated on and on. Lord, how often? Seven times? And we've probably smiled at Peter's response here in this passage since seven times doesn't seem like that much to us. But yet we certainly shouldn't smile. Indeed, we have absolutely no reason to do so with regard to Peter here. To forgive seven times, to genuinely forgive, would mean making the best of the wrong that has been done to us. It would mean repaying evil with good. It means loving the other person as if that person had always been our dearest friend. This, in fact, is no small feat. Indeed, it's what we tend to call forgiving and forgetting, to live and let live. But then genuinely forgiving out of pure love, love that simply refuses to turn the other person loose and instead insists on continuing to support that person that is certainly no small feat. And they are questions that are real torment. How can I deal with this person? How can I endure this person? Where do my own rights begin with regard to this person? And when these questions arise, let us go to Jesus, as Peter did. For if we go anywhere else, or if we were to simply ask ourselves, we would only get insufficient help or zero help at all. 
Jesus, however, will indeed offer help, albeit only in quite particular fashion. Not up to seven times, Peter, but 77 times. And Jesus knows that the only in this way can he help Peter. Don't count Peter. Instead, forgive without counting. Don't torment yourself with the question of how long. Endlessly, Peter, endlessly. That is what it means to forgive. And precisely that is what grace is for you. And that alone will make you free. When you count once, twice, three times, the whole matter becomes increasingly threatening and your relationship with that person gets increasingly agonizing. Don't you notice that as long as you're still counting for that long, you are still reckoning that earlier sin of that person. And it's for that long you still have not really forgiven that person. You haven't even forgiven them the first time. Peter, free yourself from such counting. Forgive and pardon with neither number nor end. Don't need to worry about your own rights since they're already taken care of with God. You may forgive without end. Forgiving has no beginning or end. It takes place daily and unceasingly because ultimately it comes from God. And this is what liberates us from forced relationships with others. For here we are liberated from ourselves. We may surrender our own rights merely in order to help and serve others. Listen, there is no longer any need for us to be so sensitive. We gain nothing by it. No need for us to be so concerned about our own honor. No need to be indignant when others repeatedly wrong us. No need to continually judge those persons. We need only to love them right where they are and forgive them for everything. Absolutely everything. Without end and without qualification. Is it not a truly enormous grace that we can enjoy such peace with our neighbors? knowing that no one and nothing can ever disturb that peace. Here, our friendships, our marriages, our brotherhood and sisterhood receive precisely what they need, namely, firm, enduring peace through forgiveness. And when Jesus said this to Peter, he was telling and giving him something joyous, something wonderful, something that would free Peter from the agonizing opposition between people. You may forgive one another, Jesus says. And this is truly good news. But what is unfortunate is that precisely when Jesus wants to give us such enormous help, something truly great, we immediately turn around and say, oh, how difficult this is. What 
Jesus is putting on us here, how unbearably difficult, rather than helping us, this merely burdens us further. Who's able to do this, to forgive a brother or sister for everything and to bear it together with him? All our defiance reawakens. No, I don't want to do it. I cannot do it. And the other person hasn't really earned my forgiveness. We may ask Jesus for help without end, but then we resist his help, saying it's not really help at all. Jesus does not want to hear that from us. You cannot forgive. You don't want to forgive. The other person doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Indeed, who do you think you are talking and thinking like that? And Jesus then recounts this terrible story about the roguish servant. The servant who experienced mercy and yet remained a hard person to whom all mercy was then denied. And by telling us this angry story, Jesus gives us the greatest help possible by showing us the true path to true forgiveness. And this path is what we now want to understand. Are we able to recall a moment in our own lives when God called us to judgment A moment in which we lost ourselves, in which our own lives were at stake. God demanded that we render and account for ourselves, and yet we could show nothing but debts. Such immeasurably great debts. Our life was stained and impure and guilty before God. We had nothing, absolutely nothing to show but debts and even more debts. And let us recall how we felt at that time, how we had nothing to hope for, how futile and meaningless everything seemed. We could no longer help ourselves. We stood there completely alone, facing nothing but punishment, righteous punishment. Before God, we were unable, utterly unable to stand up straight before God, before the Lord God, and we fell on our knees in despair, and we pleaded, Lord, have patience with me and we likely came out with all sorts of excuses just as the roguish servant does here I promise I'll pay back everything I'll make restitution I'll do this and that knowing all too well we would never be able to pay it but then suddenly everything changed God's countenance was no longer filled with anger, but rather with enormous mercy and grace towards us. And so God remitted all our debt and we're forgiven and we're free and all anxiety departed from us. And we are once again joyous and we are once again able to look to God and offer thanks. And we too once appeared just like this roguish servant. But oh, how forgetful we are. And now we go see someone who's done us a slight wrong, who's deceived us or slandered us, or maybe really hurt us or said something we don't like, or doesn't have the same views as us. And we come to them and we say, make good on what you have done. I will never forgive you for what you've done. And can't you see that what we really ought to say is, 
whatever they have done to me is nothing. Absolutely nothing compared to what I have done to God and to other people. Who has called us to condemn people when we ourselves are much more culpable? That's the whole lesson here. Though you you certainly see other people's sin, you do not see your own. And only by recognizing in repentance God's mercy for you will you yourself then also be capable of forgiveness. And how can we get to the point where we're able to forgive each other's sins, all of our sins, from the bottom of our hearts? My dear friends, those who have experienced what it means for God to lift us up out of the pit of great sin and forgive us, and whoever has experienced how a brother or sister genuinely can release us from our sin in God's name, that person surely will lose all inclination to judge and to hold grudges. And instead, we'll only want one thing, to forgive without measure, without qualification, without end. Such a one can no longer hate sinful brothers and sisters, but instead will help bear the distress of others, serving them, helping them all the more, and forgiving them for everything. Everything. Lord our God, may we experience your mercy so that we too may practice mercy without end. If you're here tonight and someone has popped into your mind who you have not forgiven without measure, without qualification, may I implore you, listen to the Lord. Forgive without end. It's worth it. I listen to the sermon and I, I don't know about you, but I hear, wow, Bonhoeffer truly calls us out. He takes our idea of forgiveness and says, no, you merely say you're forgiving, but you do not. Real forgiveness is treating that person as if they'd never done anything wrong in the first place with all the love you had for them before the thing they did that wronged you. Uh, that is so hard. He talks about this idea of seven times 70, you know, it, it, it is, it is just so much bigger. Forgiveness is so much more. And he's, and you're really treating that person like God treats you after your sin. Actually. Um, it sounds more like Christ to do it Dietrich's way. A lot of times I feel like we hear forgive, but don't trust, but no, Dietrich is really going on that and saying, that's not really what God does though. He actually forgives you and gives you more responsibility afterwards. But it sounds like real forgiveness. It sounds like the kind of forgiveness Christ had for us. And it sounds like the kind of forgiveness Christ is probably actually calling us to have. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Dustin Garrett. 
Dustin Garrett works as a representative at Samaritan Ministries, and he's also the music director at Liberty Bible Church. If you liked today's episode, you can find the transcript for this episode and all of our episodes at revivethoughts.com. Special thank you to a new Patreon who wished to remain anonymous, so we thank you for hopping on the Revive Thoughts premium team, and a special thank you to another Patreon who upgraded how much they were giving to us just a little bit, and we appreciate all of you so much and the help that you give. If you would like to join the Revive Thoughts premium team, listen to these episodes with no advertisements, listen to our Revive Thought deep dives. Joel and I are actually in the works of two episodes of Revive Thought deep mm-hmm. dives that will be coming out here as we get them worked on. If you would like a personally signed bookmark by Joel and myself. If you would like to revive thought stickers, you gotta join the revive thoughts premium team where you can get access to all of these things. And, and most importantly, you help us to continue bringing these sermons to you. We've launched two shows in 2020. We have plans for more shows in 2021, and we are able to bring these to you. Thanks to the help that you give us. It, it is very much appreciated and we really do. And a little bit of every dollar that comes in, we give to serve now to help bikes go to pastors who are preaching around their, uh, around their home towns and have to go long distances so it's a big project and we're working on it this is troy and jill and you're listening to revive thoughts this episode is brought to you by the worth your time podcast where you'll hear from christian female entrepreneurs politicians ministry leaders authors athletes ceos and more I'm Erica Anderson, mom of two, writer, and host and creator of Worth Your Time. I created this podcast because I wanted to hear from more women like me who were interested in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. How do we navigate the choppy waters of partisan politics? How do we engage with culture honorably as Christian professionals? I know you don't have a lot of time, and that's why I make every second worth it on this show. You'll hear from women that aren't on every other Christian podcast, and we get really real, because I don't know how to function any other way. Episodes drop every other Tuesday. Hope to see you there.